Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Today, I am very happy to introduce Joel Leggy, who is the EVP and Chief Strategy Officer at Randstad Technologies. Joel has over 23 years experience in the HR services industry, and before joining Randstad, he served as President of Sales and Recruiting for Prosum and President of Fahrenheit IT Staffing and Consulting. Joel also spent 10 years at K-Force and began his professional career at J.P. Morgan following graduate school. Joel holds a BA in Communication Studies from the University of Iowa and a Master's in Human Resources and Labor Relations from Michigan State University. Welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers, Joel Leggy. How are you? I'm well, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Joel, just to set the scene, you are the EVP and Chief Strategy Officer of Randstad Technologies and Engineering. Can you just explain to us what exactly you do at Randstad? Can you explain the scope of your role and the organization, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I work specifically with our technology and engineering divisions, and uh, we're about a $1.3 billion division of Randstad North America, which is roughly about a, a $500 billion division of Randstad Global, which, of course, operates in about 39 countries all across the world, of course. Uh, as the chief strategy officer in the U.S., uh, had a lot of different uh uh, different functions within that role. We really focused first in the last three and a half years on our go-to-market strategy from our account segmentation. So how do we go and sell to customers that are enterprise level, medium size and small? And what does that look like? And how do we have a consistent uh, strategy going forward? And then over time, it's involved to uh, more of what I like to call operational M&A. So as we look at potential acquisitions in the marketplace, uh, not just in technologies or engineering, but across the U.S. operating companies. I've been partnering with our corporate development folks in Amsterdam in looking at, is this the right fit? Is the right cultural fit? Is the right organization for us to continue and perhaps look at uh, as, uh, as a partner? And in the last line there, Marcus, is also partnerships. So partnerships internally and externally, how do we leverage them and, and uh, how do we continue to innovate and grow? Okay. How many sort of offices or regions do you oversee, Joel? Well, I'm in a matrix role, but uh, I would say that uh, we have a chief strategy and chief delivery officer that are peers of mine, and there's about 63 offices in the U.S. that roll up to them on the on the engineering on the, the sorry the technology side, and on engineering is roughly about 10. And where does Randstad sort of sit in the whole global ranking of staffing companies? Well, globally, we are number one. Uh, we surpassed ADECO, I think, in 18, the late, late 18, and then in 19. I think we were roughly around 23 billion euros last year, um, or 24 billion euros last year uh, globally. Obviously, the number is going to change uh, based on COVID this year. But uh, so number one globally in the U.S., technologies ranks fourth. I, I believe the rankings are uh, Tech Systems, Apex, Insight, Us is fourth from a, a market share perspective in the U.S. for technologies. Good. So you're very big. It's 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 an enterprise, large enterprise organization. Yes, the biggest I've been to, with since I was uh, started right out of school at J.P. Morgan. Excellent. So really, from a market trend perspective, you've got a bird's eye view on the staffing market right now. I've heard a lot 
of anecdotes and rumors flying around about what's actually happening, but you must really have a good understanding of what's happening in the technology recruiting markets over the past three or four months. What's going on and what are the opportunities moving forward and how are you guys adapting? Yeah, I, I think from a, a technology perspective, I, I think that uh, you've seen a peer, a lot of the peers come out as well that are publicly traded firms that have, you know, shared in their quarterly earnings, right? The, the fall off that they saw at the end of March, I think that's been fairly uh, widespread across the industry in the U.S. from a technology perspective and tech services that the end of March and then April, certainly uh, up until the beginning of May being a trough per se of opportunity slow down. Um, that being said, I think most all the firms came out and said they were roughly in that single digit to low double digits decline year over year. So five to 10% down year over year. Uh, so I think that's been, been fairly consistent. What we have seen is opportunity pop up in areas that we didn't always expect. And that was some of our customers or, or clients or prospects that had outsourced some work um, overseas, perhaps to India, where um, some of the work couldn't be covered uh, during COVID because of lack of infrastructure. They brought some of that back on shore. So we've actually seen our solutions businesses grow year over year. So where we're truly providing outsourced and, uh, and outcome-based work, where we do about 25% of our revenue in that area, uh, we've actually seen a growth in that area, Marcus. Right. Because I think people think of Randstad as a traditional staffing company, don't they? I think they do. I mean, we employ 750,000 people worldwide on a weekly basis. So yeah, that's, and we are, and we're very good at that. Uh, I think when we look at Ronstadt Technologies in the US, you know, roughly 300 million plus of true outcome-based solutions work isn't something that people naturally put us in the bucket of a slalom, sensor, et cetera. Right. Because you're competing with uh, the big five or six consulting firms in that kind of uh, business. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. So in the traditional staffing model that we're all familiar with, contracts and permanent delivery, where have you seen the impact and which one of those verticals has suffered the most? Oh, direct hire. Absolutely. Uh, doesn't mean that deals aren't being done. Uh, I think that um, so much data, so much anecdotal data out there, right? Whether it's Michael Page or Hayes or Robert Half or, or K-Force or, or anybody that's a public firm that does a number of uh, perm deals, even even on assignment ASGN with cyber coders, right? The estimates were 50 to 60% down uh, from a true, right, from your, your fees perspective. So opportunities were down significantly, but, you know, minimum is probably that 40 to 50% down year over year with the fees perspective. So I think we all know, right? A lot of clients that go through uncertainty, they can shut off the direct hire valve pretty quickly from that perspective. Sometimes the contract has projects that are ongoing that have been going for six, 12, nine months, right? And they want to continue. But at a minimum, the, the most hard hit was the direct hire there. And we've been in this bubble for over four months now in the COVID bubble. Are you seeing any upward trends in direct hire now? Do you see any uptick in confidence in the way that your clients are behaving from a permanent recruitment perspective? Well, yes. And what I will say, Marcus, is it's spotty, but it's spotty within specific industries. So let's look at those that have really taken off, right? What's interesting is to see a divergence with the, the actual equity markets 
and what's happening with COVID in the U.S., I, I think it's the same. There are some of these employers that are doing really well. Some of them have been asked to make, uh, you know, make the vaccines in advance, and they have billions of dollars coming from the government to cover those costs. Those companies didn't always have the infrastructure. So there's companies like that. There's other biotech firms that are growing rapidly. There are firms that are supplying, you know, all the, the needs to the healthcare industry. Some of those firms needed to ramp up very quickly. And we de- did see pockets of bulk hiring and direct hire where we hadn't even worked with those customers in the past. So, Marcus, there are areas that are, that are ramping up in that area on direct hire. Plus companies that obviously serve the remote worker like Zoom and Slack. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the tools that we've seen come out of this are going to you know, be, be game changers for us as we continue to go forward. I think someone shared the analogy, you know, we didn't know before 9-11, right, what was going to stick. And then after 9-11, you know, your experience at an airport is very, very different. I kind of share the same thing. We didn't know before COVID, you know, what was going to be like. And as we come out of this at some point, right, what will be kind of the new norm? I think that's overused term, but what what it will be like that we go, oh, well, before COVID, we didn't always do that. How are you adapting? How are the players in that market adapting in the way they either reach out to new clients or existing clients? And And have you had to sort of downsize a little bit in that department? Well, I, I think with anything, you look at... Um, uh, we haven't gone through the, the formal rifts on that side, right, in terms of, oh, wait, you know, we're not making that number. That being the case, I think that there's always people that go through that maybe weren't being as uh, successful at the time and maybe self-select out and say, okay, maybe, you know, I'm not getting the opportunities I got before. There's another opportunity for me if I maybe get out of the industry or do something different, that that may happen. Um, I think from a client perspective, you know, there there is a tendency and I, and I, I still kind of go with this school of thought. So um, stick with me is, you know, kind of people get into crisis and all of a sudden it's, wow, I have to call every other client that I've never talked to in my entire career and build a completely different target list uh, because my clients have stopped using as much. Where, you know, I actually believe that the focus should continue to be on your existing clients and that typically the people that you've treated well, that you've served well over the years will serve you well. Um, I think that may sound really great and altruistic, but I do think stick with your initial kind of Pareto principle, right? Um, those companies that, are, that have gotten you there will continue to get you there, but they may get more leads and referrals for you versus completely changing your target list to a whole bunch of people you've never talked to because you're, you're a little freaked out about the market. I mean, a lot freaked out. Um, I think there's certainly benefit to calling new customers, but that being the case, don't forget about the customers that got you there. I couldn't agree with you more on that, Joel. And um, speaking of the Pareto principle, where 80% of your results come from 20% of your clients in the recruiting industry, that's extremely true. And I think these last few months have been a very hard time to start new relationships. So I've been advising people to really focus on the people they know. And the advantage, and I put a video on LinkedIn about this a couple of months ago, is that you've been able to really get to know people personally and make a kind of connection with them that you've previously been unaware of. Yes, I've heard it from one, not directly, and one very directly from a leader who took over another part of a division in the U.S. and said, you know, at the time he was just devastated, right? He wasn't able to travel, be on the road to meet his team that spread out across the United States. And ultimately, looking back a few months later, because he shared this with me, I think at the end of May, he said he never believed how many times he would be on the call face to face with all these people that worked with him directly. And honestly, after eight weeks, he felt like he knew the team a lot better 
than he he would have had he been traveling to all those markets. Uh, and I heard just the same thing from somebody else in, in Europe who took over uh, the market in France. And he's had, you know, he even had a post about having 500 Zoom calls with meetings of people across their, their group. I think it's allowed people to connect certainly in a different way, but more frequently and have more, I think, deeper conversations. I totally agree with that. And I also think that People have got over their nervousness of being on video because I used to say 50% of the time, I can't do Zoom right now. My internet connection isn't working, which is usually the truth. But I feel 100% comfortable having video calls with anybody now because we all know we're at home. Some people are in their office, some people are in their garage, and everybody's got a different environment. But it just seems we've broken down that barrier now and people are a lot more comfortable face-to-face on video, which means I spend more time face-to-face with people than ever before. Right, right. True. So let's talk about the big remote experiment. You know, the major players in the staffing industry, in my opinion, have always had a very strong in the office culture, you know, to foster teamwork, collaboration, productivity, etc. How has the big remote experiment impacted that culture, that in office culture? And what do you think the biggest takeaways are so far? Well, I, I think it has it's impacted in the fact that, you know, we realize, I think, what we miss so much that early on there was so much talk about kind of the spin of how positive this can be and I get to see you and I see, like you said, right, the families and the dogs and everything else. And then I do think there was a little bit of a lull, like, well, we really thought we were going to get through this faster and this is really here for a while. And and how are we going to do this? How are we going to start new people? How are we going to get people onboarding in this environment? And people had to deal with the challenges of how you do that. Uh, I think we've taken the positives and the negatives from it, right? There have been some challenges there. The, the hard, like you said, it's a cultural driven industry where, you know, the way you feel, how you're treated by others, the camaraderie you get from people around, the energy you get from the people that you're working with, the information that you're sharing, the communication sharing. We certainly had to change that, right? In terms of for us, how we're G chatting and sharing those things on IMs with everybody, how you're getting on calls and sharing it now. I think that, uh, as we go forward, some of those things are going to impact how we do business significantly down the road that maybe in the, in the past, you know, it wasn't something that was required that we all did it and now we will. So I do think that you're right. The industry that was so well known for being in the office and, and having people collaborate together has been forced here. And as you said, you know, one third of the year we've been in this mode and we're starting to realize we're still can be successful. We still can put deals together. We can still have relationships with customers. It's all very different. But that being said, there's going to be some things we take away from this that I think are going to be really powerful. Have you seen morale being impacted at all? Have you seen changes in the way people are? And are you jonesing to get back into the office soon? I, I, I am actually jonesing to get back in the office. I think mine is just the, you know, someone said it best the other day. I just want to see someone in person. You know, I don't have to necessarily hug them or give them a, a virtual high five, but I just want to see somebody else in person. Um, you know, I'm in a unique role, right? Tw- 20 of my 23 years or so in the staffing industry, I've spent the time either as a significant producer or leading teams. I've been in a, more of a matrix role, so a senior executive role. But So I can travel these markets, Seattle, San Fran, Indianapolis, Chicago, etc. And what's interesting is that people don't directly report to me. They know that I report to the, you know, that I'm a peer with chief sales officer or chief client officer in our case, chief delivery officer, et cetera. And uh, I've been an executive sponsor for a number of accounts. So I can get in and I really feel like build a relationship with folks. And also here, right? What can we do better to improve? What are we doing really well? 
and and then genuinely share my gratitude for what they're doing and also my ideas in a way that isn't I'm the leader you should listen to me. So in this role where I would have sometimes just shown up in a market, maybe given them a week notice that, hey, I have some meetings already in Dallas. I'm going to be down there. I'd love to come with you on some client meetings, get to meet the team, love to take them out maybe for we'll have a working lunch or do a happy hour. And you get to know people. It's very different in this role because I can't just pop in. So I have found myself just randomly scheduling uh, you know, check-in calls with certain leaders that I normally would see in the course of a year. And with really no other alternative motive, then I just want to see how they're doing. And I, I think it's it's gone well. Um, you know, I, I think they truly understand when it's all done. This is not about, you know, I wasn't trying to check a box that I don't have a list of people I'm trying to call through. I just normally would have these conversations. And by not being out there, and I usually travel two or three times a month, by not being out there, I miss that. That sounds like a fun role you're in, Joel, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> because not having that responsibility and then not having the fear of God in people when you arrive at their office, um, it, it must make for a really nice way to build relationships. It's interesting. Someone asked me early on, what, what's it like and what's it like in the team dynamic? And I made a joke. Uh, I don't know um, if you've seen Big with Tom Hanks. Of course. Okay. So I, 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 I often akin it to, you know, kind of the boardroom presentation where they're, they're talking through the transformer and how the transformer, you know, is a robot and turns into the Empire State Building. And, you know, Tom Hanks' character raises his hand and says, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Like, what's fun about that? What's fun about, you know, uh, it turns into a Empire State Building. And I said, that's a little bit of my role, right? Um, I've, you know, I, I can be on the side. I can be objective. All of the people that work in these offices don't directly report to me. So I can stand back and say, hey, after 23 years in the business, I don't get it. Or, or why wouldn't we try this? And be a little bit of that, that counselor almost of why don't we try this in a different way? I do really enjoy that piece. It is more of like an internal consulting type role. Um, and then I, I love directing teams, right? I, I think it's been a, a great passion. So I think it's an interesting uh, interesting blend of what I've had experience in doing and what I'm able to do now. Hey, let's move on and talk a bit about automation and how AI is affecting the recruiting industry because a lot has changed in the last 10 years. And there's to be this whole like ecosphere of recruiting automation tools and tech companies kind of orbiting our industry right now. To what extent have you and Randstad embraced this new technology era and how's it impacting your firm's ability to deliver? Yeah, I, I think I'll share just a small anecdote first, which is, you know, the, la the last role I had before this, very much love the firm, very small boutique firm, not very small, but a, a boutique firm out of SoCal. And and I got called by a guy I used to work with, Greg Paglieri. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving. I'm really happy. And and ultimately, he's like, you know, we, we spent a long time together. And I said, well, I'd have to really see Ronstadt. I just don't see myself at a behemoth enterprise. I just, you know, I, you know, I've really kind of enjoyed a, a smaller, um, smaller group. And so I flew down to run to Atlanta, the North American headquarters and met with a number of people there. And I got to tell you, I was really taken aback about what I saw that was really bleeding edge. And from a technology perspective, right, doing things that I hadn't seen done before. Mm -hmm. And thinking in a way that I know in talking with a CEO or a CIO or a CFO at a client, they would be interested in how we could put together solutions for them. And that to me was really what got me excited again. And I think what made me realize, 
okay, I'm good at what I do. I think I could continue doing this. This is a great size firm, really good family culture. I could do something that's totally new and get involved in some things that I think are changing the industry. And that ultimately is what drew me to Ronstadt three and a half years ago. I think the other is Ronstadt six years ago started Ronstadt Innovation Fund. So out of Europe, that acquired a company um, and uh, managing director Alanka was part of that company and had a great knowledge of looking at investments and Series A and Series B funding and what companies would be right. And so they ultimately decided to create a fund where we would invest Series A or Series B funding in startups that we felt were there to disrupt the talent space. So when we talk about an HR services firm, this is a really wide ranging firm in terms of our capabilities. And so today, I think we have 15 firms that we've invested in. Some of those uh, we've had an exit with, but firms like HackerRank, Alio, Wade & Windy, Pymetrics, uh, you know, there are so many different tools and we try to use them as a, as a consumer and then also help them to really springboard their brand and grow. So I think from our perspective, we've been involved in, okay, what's going to change the industry for a while? So getting to your point, because I can be long-winded in that, Marcus, is it puts us in a different space because we can sit down, and we've done this a number of times, where we sit down with a chief procurement officer, CEO, CFO, et cetera, and have a conversation with them about the landscape and about where we see things changing in the landscape and also come at it from an investor perspective. That as an investor, we've invested in these 15. I'm not saying these are the only ones out there. But we're in doing it because we would rather invest in something that's going to disrupt than be disrupted. And I, I think that's a that's a good way to think about it, right? You can sit back and say, I'm not going to change. And ultimately, you know, you're ran out of business by the guy that creates a barcode. Or you can come up and say, I want to create the barcode and, and change the way we do inventory management. And I think what's particularly interesting about that is... It sort of bucks the traditional VC model where a company goes and pitches their company to a VC and the VC really has no evidence whether or not that idea is going to stick. Whereas at Randstad, you can just pop the hood on your own organization and figure out whether this new idea or tool set or platform would really help you figure out some of the challenges that you actually face on a daily basis. So what's your favorite new tool set or technology that has changed the way in which people work inside our industry? I think it is to the point of AI and automation. We've all seen some amazing demos. I think ultimately what we're all continuing to work towards is how is this going to be fully integrated and operational and change the way we continue to work? So, you know, in piecemeal, we have the tools and we we have them today and, and we've engaged these tools in our ecosystem that... We can get an automated job order that comes, let's say, from a VMS, right? The uh, comes in a VMS to our ATS system, and automatically, based on you know what we have from a tool set, we can take that in the ATS and create uh, a job order that goes out to all of our data sets, right? So our data lake, so whether that's Monster, or Career Builder, Dice, right, LinkedIn, etc., and mm-hmm. it can post it to candidates, and candidates that are then replying to that have the ability to also say, oh, okay, you know, those that are screened, we now have the ability that we could use an automated tool to screen them and say, these top 100 are the ones that really qualify based on what we can see in in uh, their resume that's online. If we can send them a note and say, hey, text this number to this number and you'll get a screening question, we can have automated screening happen from an SMS tool. 
So they could screen them on five or six questions. Let's say on JavaScript, your level is one, two, three, right? Basic ones and zeros type um, screening to the point that we can then get a whole data lake of candidates, candidates that fit that description of what we're looking for, candidates that then have been responding. And by the way, you and I both know response in this marketplace is the difference between deal and no deal. So getting candidates who are engaged, who actually say, yeah, I do fit the skill set and I'm interested and I'm so interested that I'll actually screen maybe on a text message. I'm not saying everything happens this way, but then being able to get them to self-select for an actual time to talk to one of our recruiters so that you could envision a day when the recruiters come in the office at eight o'clock or nine o'clock and they have eight to 10 calls set up through the day that were set up by the candidates to talk with them. So you're beginning to worry me here, Joel, because you've now you've eliminated all the sourcing, you've eliminated all the outreach, you've eliminated all the screening, you've eliminated all the calendaring, and now we're arriving in a scenario where I can come into work in the morning at Randstad and eight o'clock be on the phone with a fully screened, vetted, and ready to roll candidate. Well, I think you have to have that vision, Marcus. I think you have to think that if we could get this, how much more effective would we be? Not with less recruiters. Mine is the same amount or more. If, if our recruiting team could focus on just conversations with candidates that truly have the ability and they're interested in, in a potential change in the coming months or weeks, they would be very effective. The other massive change, I think, would change to that role is redeployment, especially in contract staffing. I, I think, and, and I use a data point from Puck and Schindel, who's at Sense, right? And they have a great tool. Um, and, and I think he talks about the industry average of redeployment is somewhere in the United States at 7%. That's abysmal yep. to think 93% of the people end their contracts with one of our firms and they go to work with somebody else. Certainly the easiest thing to do is to keep them and keep them employed. If we spend attention from people that are finding new candidates by sourcing and identifying new candidates to taking the 93% that are successfully ending an assignment with us and redeploying them at our clients, I think it's a massive change in our, in our profitability and growth. Yeah, because they're already employees of yours. Absolutely. We've paid statutory costs. We've invested the time and attention into them. We hope that they have an affinity for working for us and they want to continue working for us. Uh, I think all of those things are massive uh, opportunities. But yes, it, does it seem scary? It does. Here's my thing. It takes a lot to build those tools, implement the tools, to test them. You know, what did we see from one of the biggest companies in the world, Amazon? They had an automatic sourcing tool that they shut down. Why? Because they couldn't prove that it didn't discriminate. So if you can show that there's unconscious, no, no bias, that this ultimately are some of the biggest hurdles we're going to have in this. And I think especially in this environment right now, you're going to have to be able to validate that you don't have bias in your tools. But it's still apparent to me, at least, that you can't automate relationship development and relationship building. Of course. So there is a point at which this automation sort of stop short of actually doing the deal or making the placement because there is human interaction still needed in this whole process, right? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I know that you are passionate about building sales and recruiting teams, and you've done a lot of that in your career. And I also know that we're in an industry that has traditionally got pretty high staff turnover, especially in the first year or 18 months of employment. Can you share some of the challenges that you've faced in building these teams and how you've overcome those challenges? And maybe talk a bit about how you build a culture that can withstand or even mitigate high staff turnover. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think that the ultimate enemy isn't that people are leaving your firm. I think the ultimate en enemy is identifying the right people that are going to stay and be successful. 
there will be people we hire that we like and that we fully believe in that we think will be really successful in our business who may choose not to do this, that it's okay. And giving leaders the ability to say, sometimes there is nothing else you can do, right? You, you want to pick great people. You want to give them the right tools. You want to support them as much as you can do. And at the end of the day, ultimately, you're surprised that they got into dental school, had that happen, law school, right? Decided, you know, to move across the country to be with a loved one. All these things happen that you can't always control. So, you know, my, mine was always, too, is, is to listen to the red flags, you know, because it starts with hiring. You know, here it is. We do this all the time for our clients. But I think when it comes to hiring for ourselves, sometimes we even overlook the small red flags. Uh, and I know that that sounds really simple, but it's being true to, you know, I always try to hire the people that you feel not only are going to, to, to push us, to, to help us be successful, but they, they have that desire to win. You know, people have often asked me, what makes people successful in staffing and recruiting and that? And, you know, my answer was always very simple that I felt that it took intellectual competence and a sense of urgency. And those were two things that I didn't ultimately think that we could really teach people. So uh, I think that people have to be, you know, bright intelligence to remember not only the conversations, but to recall information that they have that they can share back with candidates and clients. And I think an insane sense of urgency just makes you more successful in our business. Uh, when you think about you had Casey Jacox on, right, some of the top performers in the business, they had the ability to take hits of 20, 30 ends coming at them on a monthly basis and take it, maybe take a few hours to decompress and then come back at it with this amazing sense of, of purpose and they were going to be successful at it. So, you know, when you're building the teams, it was finding the right people. I mean, I think ultimately we say that. I think I ultimately learned over time, we really had to focus on developing. When I looked at some of the most successful teams that we had, we had developed those leaders from associates to kind of on, you know, on book producing leaders, producing managers to off book leaders to then eventually v VPs, et cetera. And, and leading every step of the way is a little different. And I think it does take time to learn some of those things. But the most successful teams I've had, we built them internally, typically, and we gave them more opportunity. And, and that's a challenge. It really is. But I think when you do, you start to see better retention. You ultimately see people that see a career path of where they can go within the organization. And there's a sense that I want to be here because I want to be like that. I want to be a part of that. The staffing industry is accused of having like a revolving door hiring policy. Come on board. And then if you're not successful in the first three or six months, it's, it's out the back door. Do you think this is a misconception or do you think that people coming into the industry don't fully understand what they're letting themselves into? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. And don't get me wrong. And I, and I enjoyed very much. I mean, Michael Manser hired me in the business in, in 97. Great guy. I started, I think my training consisted of here's the DOS prompt that you're going to be working on. Here's a list of openings we have. And by noon that day, I was calling people about uh, uh, Katia opportunities, which I mispronounced um, Katia at the time and got hung up on by a number of engineers. So my, my success was not because of the training program. It was because you had a whole earnings training. You should be grateful for that. <laughs> right. It was the sink or swim attitude. And, and I think, un unfortunately, right, I mean, at some point, people believe, well, this is the way I started the business. If you're going to be successful, you're going to do it that way. My training was very similar to that. I arrived at the office and they said, there's your desk, there's your phone, and there's a list of leads for you to start calling. I, I think we know today that we can do it in a much better way. That, But I, I do believe with you. We need to be very transparent and clear with folks of what this job truly is every day. 
we talk to people yeah. that want to be salespeople and we I think there's a perception that I'm going to be out on these amazing client lunches and dinners and happy hours and, and just whining and dining clients and doing all these amazing things and activities with them. And maybe once a month or two months, I'll take them for a call. And then we'll realize how much time they're going to be spending up front just to get somebody on the phone or to respond to their email or to get a meeting set with them to talk about you know their interest and how they could potentially be a partner how hard that is, especially for someone who hasn't been in the business. I, I do believe that. I think some of the firms I've been with did a great job of shadow, right? Bringing the people in for a half day, having them sit there and understand and listen what, what they would have to do as a recruiter or salesperson. Uh, and I think some of the most successful, we've, we've seen a number of people that transition from recruiting into sales because they can see it. They can see how they perform. They can choose. That's what I want. And I think that has been ultimately successful. But yeah, th there's a turnover because it's a it's a hard job. It's, I think the other factor is this isn't just working on a factory line, just dropping inserts into cereal boxes. You know, my mom did that at General Mills back in the day. This is a, or Quaker Oats, this is a very different job. And you don't know it until you get at it. And even when you've hired people that have been successful, they're not always successful with you. I've had that. I've hired people that were incentive trip winners at other firms and they came to our, our firm and they didn't, didn't make it. I've also hired people that have been let go from other firms for performance and they did very well at our firm. So it, ultimately, there are so many different factors that can make someone successful. Yeah. I mean, both sides of the coin have to work. It's not just the employee, it's the employer. And quite often you go for an interview with a company and what actually is served up to you when you arrive at that company is very different. Mm -hmm. There is an inherent kind of risk involved in joining any company, whether it's a recruiting company or any other, because you never really truly know what you're going to get until you've been there for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. But um, how does the Randstad sort of internal office culture differ from other companies that you've been involved with previously? Oh, uh, that's a good question, because I think there are a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, I always say how you treat people. Mm -hmm. Um I do feel like I'm surrounded and I, and I take this back to one of the things that I was so that I really loved about JP Morgan when I was there right out of grad school was I felt that I was surrounded by people that were, were very intelligent and I had to be on my A game all the time. Uh, I remember interviewing in this role with Ronstadt and Linda Gallipo, who, as you might know, was with Ronstadt for 20 plus years, 23 years, I think, and ran, ran North America and grown up a business. And I was, I was nervous for the interview because she was kind of a pioneer in, in what they had done. And I felt like I really had to know my stuff, right? I had to really prepare. I think that sense is something you should have with you all the time, right? If, if you don't have that sense of, I need to be on my A game to prepare. I had a, a meeting last week, happened to be with our global CEO and global CFO. And, and you know, I practiced. I practiced in my office. I went over the presentation. I made notes. I could spoke out loud. I, you know, when you think about it, when was the last time you practiced? We talk about role playing. When was the last time? You know, I'm 48. When was the last time I role played? For me, that's important. That's important for me to be surrounded by people that I know. They know their stuff. They know what they're. You can't just go in there and wing it. And and I think as as classic salespeople, we're used to kind of winging it sometimes. I think that's one of the things I love about Ronstadt is that I feel like I'm surrounded by people that really know the business. They know the industry. Some of them are talking about things that are total game changers. You know, we're talking about total talent management, not just how do you buy staffing, but okay, we have firms out there that are looking at direct hire programs, statement of work programs, payroll programs, staffing programs, right? How could we bundle all this together and save you hundreds of millions of dollars? 
that to me is is really interesting. And I, I'm sorry to cut you off, Marcus. I just think that to ask the question about culture, mine is there's a high bar for the level of I think the peer group that that I feel like I'm in, where we need to provide great ideas and solutions. And I, and I think back to a comment, I think maybe Randy Marmon, I think he's leading Lucas Group now, great guy. I think he had said at one point, if you're in a meeting and you go for you know, 30, 40, 60 minutes without saying anything, we probably don't need you in the meeting. Yeah. You know, and I think I don't want everyone to talk, but I want you to add value. And that's where I feel like we're in a firm where people can add value smart group and we're doing some pretty innovative things. I think that is one of the consistent things. And outside of that, it's how you treat people. And as you know, you go office to office, there's small nuances of change, you know, almost like a fraternity or sorority college to college, right? Every office has a little bit of difference of how they, they treat each other and work. But ultimately, you know, there is a common thread between our communications at the executive level, what's coming from North America, and then also what they're seeing in videos and live web calls with Jacques, our global CEO. And I think that consistency is really cool to see. Yeah. Um, we're coming up to the end here. And there's one more topic I just wanted to touch on because I think it's a real hot point in the industry and, and always has been. And we're going to talk briefly about candidate experience and care. And you still read, if you if you're on LinkedIn regularly, you still read about people who go for countless interviews and then just they're ghosted at the end of the process, either by the agency or by the company they went for. And they're just left not knowing why they didn't get the job and what to do next and how they could improve. I think candidate experience and candidate care obviously comes in different forms as well when you're running a team of contractors. But what's your sort of overall theory on how companies should treat potential applicants, consultants on billing, et cetera? Well, I, I mean, we need to communicate and we need to communicate the, the hard issues as well. And I think the challenging conversations and topics. And I think that there's a tendency, I don't know where you are, but in our society to kind of shy away from the more challenging, uncomfortable conversations, right? Um, I think we've all seen Emmanuel Upshaw's The Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man recently, right? When you talk about that, it's very different, but they're, they're uncomfortable conversations with employees, right? I remember it was like 98 or 99, and I had to tell an employee that they had body odor. It, you know, we, we all hear those kind of stories, but they're uncomfortable. It makes you feel nervous to sit there and tell someone something that you know is going to ultimately probably make them feel bad. You don't know how they're going to react. And I think that's the thing that is part of coaching and training as well, is that you will have to give uncomfortable conversations. I have uncomfortable conversations. Some of those are about people that truly aren't qualified for a role that believe they are, or their personality rubs someone the wrong way. Um, I think the greatest challenge we have here, and some of it is are their own systems we put in place, is that, you know, let's look at some of these large enterprise organizations that are using large MSPs. We're one of the world's largest MSPs, right, in SourceRight, on SourceRight. But you ultimately now have this VMS tool where I can be a manager and say decline, and that's it. I'm not required to put anything else in the system. I can say I talked to Jane Doe or John Doe or whomever it was, and I don't feel they're a fit, and I'm not required to give you any other information. So sometimes what comes back to the organization, especially in the staffing industry, is, is secondhand, and it is simply yes or no. And, yep. and that, to me, is really challenging because you want to get on the phone with somebody and give them constructive feedback, and you don't have it. And, and ultimately, it's a decline, and they feel, hey, maybe you know something, and you don't. And I think that's the push of, of why we want to still continue to have relationships with managers because it, it makes us better at delivering better candidates for them if we know why. 
Um, it's one of the things that even in you know running MSPs and VMSs, right? Some of the more successful ones have relationships where the managers can still talk to the partners and the vendors so that they get better feedback and the feedback then can get them better candidates and they become more successful. But I think we need to have uncomfortable conversations. We need to tell the candidates what we really, really feel. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there's new, imagine a new recruiter is uncomfortable in telling somebody who's been in the business for 30 years that they're, they're not going to get this job. And I think that's where you end up with the ghosting, et cetera. That, that's a challenge. And obviously the VMS barrier does provide a problem, but I think setting expectations up front with your client to say, look, by giving us feedback, you allow us to build a better portfolio of candidates for you in the future. But also there's a glaring opportunity in the industry to build relationships at the end of the process with people that didn't get the job instead of just ghosting them. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you look at the proportion of people that you submit, either to a contract or a direct hire vacancy, full-time vacancy, then most of them don't get the job if you think about it. So therefore, that opportunity is huge to continue to build those relationships and say, if you can get feedback, great. But if you can't, at least call them and share you know, the, the situation, the current situation and be honest, authentic with them. Yeah. But by doing that, you continue to build that relationship and they could be your next best candidate for your next big role. Yeah, it's what makes great recruiters out there so good. Great recruiters and salespeople. Uh, it, it's the ability, and I used to say it, right? You, you'd sit down with a customer and they'd say, you know, I, I need another data architect or whatever. And, and you know them well enough to say, oh, you mean like Jamal? And they're like, exactly like Jamal. And you're like, wow. Okay. Well, I know I have somebody who's just finishing a project for us and they would be a great fit. That makes that client's life so much easier. It makes candidate's life so much easier. You're advocating for them. We're not going through the process of submit the resume, et cetera. I would tell you, that's where I think that the fun part about this automation piece is getting those relationships are going to continue to be that much more valuable because we know clients they want that type of relationship. They want to be able to talk to somebody, have a very good conversation and end up with high quality people quick. They don't want to sort through resumes. Completely agree with that. Um, the future, Joel, what are you most excited about moving forward for the industry, for the people who are listening, for the people who've been perhaps laid off or people who are considering a change in the recruiting world? Where are the opportunities going to be and what are you most excited about? I'm so excited for the growth and the change. And I, I'm always excited for that because it's always constantly been there. Um, I, I think I, I, I let it out earlier, right? I'm 48. So when I started in this business and in 97, after spending a few years at JP Morgan, I, you know, I ended up, you know, the rise up to the dot com bust, right? 0102. And then, of course, the financial crisis, 0809. You know, we had a long standing run, a really good run. Right. When I look in, in and IT staffing is something I've been in since 97, I've, I've done finance and accounting and wireless telecom and so many other areas, but always IT. I look back the other day and SAA said the estimated market or the actual market in 2005 was 16 billion in the United States. That market this year is like 32 plus billion. So that's a doubling of the market in the last 15 years in terms of how we are servicing customers. I also look at a Gartner report that said they think there's about 160 plus billion, 163 billion in IT services spend in the US. I think that number could be low. And of all IT projects or IT work that's being done, somewhere around 28 or 29 are done by external associates. So what's that mean? That means maybe 33 billion of them are contractors. 
There's another piece that's being done by solutions providers. I think that continues to be a space that I've you know, learned in 23 years that we've been involved in it. When you truly build a capability, it doesn't have to just be staffing. You could build a capability in, you know, mobile development or project management or, you know, agile methodologies, et cetera, that clusters will look at you and say, okay, you actually have this capability. I can leverage that. And I don't have to do management consulting. I can get this done. And there's that blending that's happening within IT staffing and, and IT services and solutions and I think for a long time, there's been kind of the redheaded stepchild. Of, oh, you're really staffing. You know, we, we used to joke, right? It's staffing on steroids, right? It looks like this. But I think we're really seeing a lot of firms continue to go true outcome-based work and compete with firms that have done this as their backbone for years. I think it's great for the industry. I think it's great for the buyers from a customer perspective. They're getting a lot of options and flexibility here. And that's where I say it's not just a $33 billion industry that 15 years ago was 16. It's 160 billion plus in the United States. And by the way, we represent roughly, I think, 46% of the IT staffing worldwide happens in the United States. That's amazing. It is amazing. Those are some pretty amazing numbers. And it strikes me that because there have been a lot of permanent recruiters and in-house recruiters laid off in the last three or four months, that there may be a pathway to future success by flipping the script and and for them to join this like services and contract revolution that that may be about to reignite again are those people that you would consider if they knocked on your door and they said look I'm an in-house technology recruiter but I'd like to transition into more of a like a managed services or a um a contract environment would you take a good look at those people as well I think absolutely you you know you got as you know right you got to hire the people that have the right skills that that want to do and the other is a desire and passion they've got to want to do it I think we said it early on. These aren't easy jobs. If they were, everyone could have it. Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's hard to be very successful in this business, uh, but we have some really successful people. And I think we've seen a bit of an exodus in the last ten years from the agency model to the in-house model, as the in-house model has grown. And what you might be about to see is maybe a lot of those people looking back over their shoulder and saying, "I'm going back," because that's where the action is. So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. But Joel Leggy, thank you so much for coming on Recruiting Trailblazers today. It's been a fascinating conversation and a really excellent insight into the, the goings-on at Randstad and the market in general. Thanks a lot for spending this time with me, and I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to my interview with Joel Leggy of Randstad. Um, if you did enjoy it, please connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know. Also, the biggest compliment you can pay me is to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts from and obviously write me a review if you really feel compelled. So thanks again and more coming soon. Cheers. Cheers.